hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to episode 406 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of Young Adult Cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan... I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, the series 19, season 19 broadcast finale of the Stupid Cancer Show, Pregnant with Cancer. One of the things that make young adult cancer so unique is that you can be diagnosed while pregnant, which is something that just doesn't happen when you're 8 or 80. Joining us to discuss the trials and tribulations of facing a cancer diagnosis and treatment while pregnant are Amanda Albritton and Cassidy White. Wow, season 19 broadcast finale. Hi, Mal. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, I'm feeling the end of the 19th season. <laughs> I can't believe it. 19 seasons. For those listening, we, we break the year up into two different seasons. So January to August and then September to December. Yes, historically, that's, that's how it's been I don't done. know why it's that way. It just is that way. So, but yeah, we're starting our 10th year of the Stupid Cancer Show in January. It's happening. It's pretty amazing. Pretty, pretty amazing. Well, yeah, we wanted to round out the uh, the season by ending on a uh, an emotional note because, you know, we can't state enough how unique young, young adult cancer is. Yeah, and those uh, unique challenges yes. that, that might come up in the... In the process. No, and, and when I when I talk to people, they constantly say, well, why just young adults? And I say, well, you can get pregnant while you have cancer. And they, oh, yeah, okay, that, now I get it. That's a different experience. This just shuts on the conversation. Like, you can't argue yeah. with why that's different. But um, anyway, good stuff. We got CancerCon registration is live and on. We it's have a, happening. Do we have like a, a dozen or so? How many people registered? We have about 27 right now. That's not bad. Yeah, for less than a week, which is pretty exciting. That is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah so cancercon.org is your place to go. Join your world. 650 of your best friends in Denver, April 26th through 27th, 27th through, through April, April 30th. 30th. 
at the charities in downtown Denver. We are doing a mad push. Our charity partners are all up in phenomenal partnership stuff. We already have some great exhibitors lined up. I know. Good stuff. Really big deal. Um, And what else is going on? Uh, We we had an interesting article come through on the Facebook wall. I love these articles. Like it's the umbrella of what not to say, but it's was done very well. It's great. And we get such a great response um, in, in the comments uh, from people who are like, I, I absolutely understand that this has happened to me. And what's, what's even better is here's the 12th thing. <laughs> Don't say this either. Yeah. Every time I read one of those, I go back to our good friend, Emily McDowell at yeah. Emily McDowell studios, who has tried to make it suck a little less for the people who do say the awkward things that don't know what to say. Yes. Uh, her book, which I believe just came out. Um, There's no good card for this. Yeah, which is sort of that whole navigating how to say things in a better way. Yeah. <laughs> that gift for the person who just says the wrong thing all the time. Well, it's not just cancer also. like it, It's everything. It's bereavement. Yeah. It's it's anything you want. And it, when you don't know, it, it's really all the things you need to say when you don't know what to say. Yes. How, how to say the things that may actually make someone feel better. And, yes. And you, you can articulate to them a little bit clearer that you actually are there for them without... Um, being schmaltzy. Well, you, you know that that actually happened to me today. Um, one of the the women who uh, works at the PTA, one of the mothers in the first grade, uh, told me today when I picked up the kids that her father had a heart attack over the weekend. And instead of saying, "Oh, my dad's fine; he's three years out," I just said, "I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, this sucks, and let me know how I can help." Yeah, I've been where I've been where you've been. Let me know what you need. Yes, exactly. So like it's like when you tell oh I I, I beat cancer. Oh my grandma had cancer. No. Yeah, things not to say. Help. Was that on the list, by the way? <laughs> Probably on the list. Um I believe it was yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to uh capping out uh season nineteen. Yeah. It's a really big deal. Uh we have two wonderful uh young mothers. On the broadcast, Cassidy White and Amanda Albritton will be bringing them out shortly. But they have really intriguing stories that really, they, they tell the story. Yeah, they they have such, it, what's interesting is they have stories that sort of mirror each other in, in the fact that they had similar but very different experiences um, and really speak to some of the unique challenges uh, that young adults face with parenting and fertility and things that they're told and not told. And it, it's it's... It's important. Well, it's an odd perspective, at least from my perch, as having two young children and not being sick, to wrap myself around what I know it was like to be sick. Yeah. Grateful that I'm not sick now. And not have. And not have this incredible burden. Yeah. And and it's fascinating. I, I've asked my parents in, in the past before, as someone who's had a parent who was sick when I was younger, how did they how did they navigate? And they had no, nope. I, they were just sort of in for the ride. Mm-hmm. It was just how it yeah. went down. Well, let's get them on the line and start the show. All right, got a great show here. Pregnant with cancer, two amazing young mothers here, Cassidy White and Amanda Albritton. Cassidy was uh, 29 years old, acute myeloid leukemia diagnosed um, when she was 29 weeks pregnant. And Amanda uh, diagnosed with stage 2 to 3 Hodgkin's lymphoma. 14 weeks pregnant in January of uh, 2016. So these are really raw, really recent stories. Please welcome um, Cassidy White and Amanda Albritton to the Stupid Cancer Show Season 19 finale. What a great way to end on this incredibly emotional, incredibly real issue of what really defines not being 80 
with cancer, getting cancer while you're pregnant. So let's start with Cassidy. Um, because uh, for uh, full disclosure, I have twin six-year-olds. I was not sick when they were brought into my my life, but I have such a an understanding of of a how hard it is to parent when you're well, but b the experience of going through cancer. And I would love to focus on how this affected you emotionally and what it did to resonate with your partner, your spouse, your family, and like what makes young adult cancer so unique is that exactly that's your story. So let's start with Cassidy. Okay. Well, I, you know, as you said, I was diagnosed while I was 29 weeks pregnant. Um, this was my second uh, baby. I have a, I had a two year old boy, Brody. He was two at the time. Um, and you know, so being diagnosed with cancer, having a toddler at home, um, was just being diagnosed with cancer is just a shock. But while you're pregnant, I just, it never really occurred to me. Like it never ever hit, hit my brain that maybe, you know, people can get sick while they're pregnant. I guess that, that might sound idiotic, but it's kind of, you know, it was just naive, I guess. But so it was a big surprise to take all of that in emotionally. And then because I was 29 weeks, I was further along, you know, the question was what to do with the baby. Do we induce you? Do we have this baby? Do we keep the baby in and do chemo while, um, you know, you, you know, to ke- keep the could, keep, sorry, I'm sorry, keep oh. the kid cooking a little longer <laughs> um, um, in there. And so that was the whole question that, you know, um, was being asked and, and it was really, really difficult, um, trying to figure out between all of the different doctors who were coming together, um, on, on what we should do. Um, and, and for me, because acute myeloid leukemia is such an aggressive cancer and mine in particular had a mutation that was, um, known to be really aggressive, um, and known to just come back, uh, regardless of cancer, I mean, chemo, um, really, uh, it was, so it was really important for me to start, uh, chemotherapy as soon as possible. And so we decided to do an induction and I had the, I had Beckham, he weighed three pounds, eight ounces, um, all natural, no painkillers or anything. And, um, and he went straight up to the NICU and four days later I started chemo, um, and that's kind of how it started. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, again, this is not a contest by any means, but I understand preemies. My kids were born at 32 weeks, twins, but 29 weeks, that's that's impressive, and, and, and he's doing well? He's doing fantastic. He's two. We just celebrated his second birthday, um, so that was pretty incredible. He he's doing amazing. You would never ever know. He's fitting into my four year old's clothes. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous because he's just he's almost outgrowing his brother. Um, so who was born full term? So, well, speaking of uh, not having any infertility problems, Amanda, you were. Uh two weeks into getting married and instantly got pregnant in the first week of trying. So congratulations on that. But then eight weeks after you found out that uh, something was wrong. Yeah. um, It was kind of crazy. Um, They have those pregnancy tests or DNA tests nowadays that um, to find the gender, you can 
take them around 10 weeks or so. Um, and we actually, like Cassidy, um, this is our first child. This is our second. And um, I had an almost two-year-old at the time. And we remember just, like, waiting, or waiting, you know, till 20 weeks till we could find out the gender. But with this one, with the test, we're like, okay, we got to do this, 10 weeks. So when the 10-week mark came, um, they did a blood test that sampled all my DNA um, and the baby's DNA to see um, what gender the baby was, but it also told um, us if there was anything wrong with the baby, like Down syndrome, um, trisome X, any um, abnormalities with the chromosomes. So um, after they took the test, I think it was about a week of waiting, um, I just could not wait to find out if it was a boy or a girl. We have a boy right now, so it would um, girl would be fun but a boy would be fun too because they could play together kind of thing um and I remember getting a phone call at work just so excited like you know I'm waiting for this forever and uh my OBGYN said you know we have some bad news and she said the um genetic code and stuff and the DNA the tests are saying there's four abnormalities with this baby like we've never seen this before in our office um, we don't really know what's going on, but it seems that most more than likely the baby did not form like he was supposed to. It's an atopic pregnancy, um, and we'll just have to kind of go from there. And she said that's, you know, probably the main thing. Then she also said, she was very smart to um, know this, but she said there is a slim, slim chance that we've seen in some mothers that those tests pick up um, not you know, the baby's defected chromosomes, but your defected DNA. So um, with that, we um, got an ultrasound the next day, and the baby, as a mother, like, I just wanted my baby to be okay. I wasn't even thinking about myself, and I wasn't even thinking about, you know, getting cancer. So we did the um, ultrasound, and the baby looked totally fine. He was 11 weeks at the time, um, looked just like a normal 11-weeker. So... We kind of just went on with life thinking, you know, we passed that test. Um, maybe, you know, we don't have to worry about anything else, kind of being in denial. Um, well, then about like a week later, I got um, an infected wisdom tooth. And my father-in-law, he's a dentist, so he said, you know, just come. They're in San Antonio. We're in Dallas. Just come to San Antonio. You know, I'll take it out for you. And um we won't be able to use really good painkillers because you're pregnant, but you'll, you know, take it out. So he took it out, and a lymph node on the same side as my infected wisdom tooth popped up. So we were thinking it's probably just the drainage from um, the infected wisdom tooth. Well, you know, a couple weeks went by, and it still was there. Like, it was not going away at all, and it just felt really sore to the touch, really just kind of like a pulled muscle. Um and it's one of those things, you know, you Google and cancer is one of the symptoms that you're like, oh, it's not going to be cancer. It's just Google. So um, anyways, after two weeks, we decided to just go ahead and get it biopsied at, a, uh, at the ENT. And he biopsied it. And um, then we took another DN or another um, test, too, to be even more sure. But both of them came back as having Hodgkin's lymphoma. So that's how I found out. Uh, so this is Mallory chiming in. 
Um, I have a question for both of you. I don't know if Cassidy, you want to take it first. What was it like balancing a toddler, a newborn and treatment all at once? <laughs> um, it was hard, as you could imagine, I guess. Um, I'm sure Amanda would probably agree that just, I mean, going to the countless doctor's appointments um, is is really tough on everyone, um, especially when you have children. Um, in our, in, in my case, you know, my kids can't go with me to the doctor. So someone had to watch the kids, uh, you know, and because they're in, um, the doctors are fearful that neutropenic patients you know, we'll get sick from, a, you know, a, a child being sick um, and and so on. So that's why. So that made it more difficult because you're constantly going to the doctor. And then I would be in um, the hospital for a week, you know, doing chemo. And then I would go out and have some rest days if it weren't for my husband and my family. But my husband was like my like the mom and the dad. He was you know, at every moment he had to be at home with the kids or if he wasn't at home, he was with me. And sometimes I'd have to force him like, you need to go home and spend time with Brody who, you know, who was two at the time who doesn't really understand what's going on. And, you know, they're bouncing around from grandparents' house to my sister's house. And, and so it just, it was really, really extremely tough, but luckily with a lot of friends, um, and with Facebook and things like that, you know, we could share kind of what we needed and things like that at the time. And so people would offer to help take care of the kids or come clean the house um, and things like that. So it it definitely wasn't easy, but having my partner there with me um, was everything to me. Yeah. So that was Kasti said. Um, the toddler, it was it was hard just especially going to those appointments and um, trying to like have the energy because when you're pregnant, you're tired, but have the energy with chemo and just cancer um, trying to get stuff done. And it's, it was heartbreaking for me because I just remember being in bed because I'd have, you know, my infusions every other week. So I'd have a good week and then a bad week of being in bed and someone on the bad weeks um, from our family would come and stay with us and watch Jackson, our two-year-old, and I just remember being in bed and him just asking me, you know, mommy, get out of bed, get out of bed, or um, it just, it broke my heart, um, and I've always had a passion for um, young preschool. I used to teach young preschool before I got pregnant with Jackson, so two-year-old, the two-year-old phase is like my favorite phase, so I just, I got so sad, and I'm still kind of angry about, you know, cancer kind of robbing six months of that with um Jackson so I think just being you know sick was and seeing my son you know like Cassidy said not completely understand everything but know that something was wrong and um he called my pick line in my arm you know my boo-boo and just asking when it was going to go away and stuff but without family I mean and without my husband there's I wouldn't have been able to get done and without my faith too so well you, you both had blood cancers and those are <clears throat> unique in and of themselves because they require more hospitalization more visits some isolation and we've had stories of women who had 
already had children when they got sick and they couldn't see their children, but you were going through this emotional process to begin with, with newborns. What was it like to not have your newborn? Um, for me, it was really difficult because, you know, uh, Beckham was in the NICU for, um, about a, I think a, a couple weeks. And then he went up to like a special care nursery cause he was doing really well, but you know, they would have to, um, they were letting me go over to the NICU originally, but, um, I had gotten sick and gotten a really bad cold or something. And so they put me in isolation. So I couldn't go see him. Um, and that was heartbreaking because all I wanted to do was just hold this baby and just snuggle and have him lay on my chest. And I couldn't do that. He could never lay on my chest. I never got that skin to skin time that, you know, I craved because being a mom before and, and with Brody, it was, it I got that time with him and I didn't get that with Beckham. Um, so I made sure that Clay, uh, my husband got that skin to skin time and that sort of thing. Um, so that was really, that was, it was really, really hard. I mean, it broke my heart, um, not being able to have that time with him. And, um, eventually I was able to leave the hospital a month later later but Beckham was still in NICU and so that was really tough too to leave my baby behind because I, here I am going home I had a child but I don't get to take him home with me um, and, and so that was really really tough too as well and Amanda yeah I can't imagine um, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to get in um, I had 12 rounds of chemo and I was able to get in 11 while I was pregnant um, now I was worried getting the infusions, of course, being pregnant, and that scared me, but it gave me, um, I just had, after he was born, I had chemotherapy, I want to say two weeks later. So I was able to, for the most part, hold him after, um, but other than we, when I had my PET scan, I couldn't have a PET scan when I was pregnant, but after having him, I had the PET scan about three weeks. Um, after giving birth to him. And I remember for 24 hours, I couldn't hold him. And that was excruciating. So I can't imagine what Cassidy went through. That's hard. So let's talk about your experience in the hospital and your doctors or your, your providers there. Was there any empathy on their part or had they ever treated women who were pregnant and had very young children during their treatments? And did you feel like you were given what you needed uh from the actual cancer center itself. Let's start with, uh, with Amanda. Yes. Um, from the instant, the first doctor I went to, I was like, you know, if it doesn't fit, I'm not going to force it. I'm going to go to a different doctor and, um, you know, fill it out because it's not just my life. It's my baby's life too. And the first doctor we went to, Dr. Patel at UT Southwestern, um, she was so good. She laid out like all the facts, um, she was able to empathize because she also has two boys that are about two years, two and a half years apart. Um, she didn't sugarcoat it, but she didn't make it a horror story either. She just kind of told it like it was. And um, I felt like everyone there, because on the weeks that I wasn't getting infusions, I would get dressing changes for my pick line. And I just became such good friends with the nurses. They felt like 
actual friends because I wasn't allowed to go to work or go to the grocery store, go to church, go anywhere because my immune system was down not only from chemo, but being pregnant too. So um, they were another, you know, kind of like pillar of strength there. And everybody kind of just recognized me as the pregnant chemo kind of lady thing, which I'm really blessed with UT Southwestern. I'm glad I went there. Cassidy? Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate um, to Amanda's, uh, you know, kind of everybody knowing that you're, you were the girl that were, that was pregnant with cancer type thing. It was, um, but at first, you know, because I found out um, about having cancer uh, because I went in for some lower back pain. And so I found out from my OBGYN that that's what it was. Um, And so for her, she, she wasn't really, uh, she was like, well, I'm not a cancer doctor, but this is what I know, you know? Um, so she, she, but she was fantastic. She actually, her office, um, they ended up paying for, uh, us to have the stem cell, the blood, uh, cord blood, sorry, um, for, for Beckham to be saved. And so, and that's very, very expensive, um, to do. And so they actually paid for that. Uh, they weren't sure if it was going to help or not, but they wanted to do it. And she came and checked on me all of the time. Um, and, and because I was pregnant, I had this will to kind of get through and she definitely pushed me, um, you know, Hey, you have another kid at home too. It's not just about this baby. And it's not just about you're not going to give up, you know, we're going to do whatever we can to help you. Um, but my original oncologist that, um, I had, had actually given me a wrong, the wrong prognosis. And, um, and so she, she had told me that, um, that I was kind of in a, in the good category in the best category I could be in as far as when it came to AML and having leukemia. Um, but then the next day she came back and she was like, well, no, you're kind of in the middle category. And I was like, oh, well, I, I didn't feel like we had that, you know, um, connection at first. She she was just, a, I guess, a general oncologist or maybe she specializes in a different field other than blood cancer. But um, she so she wasn't very familiar with it, but just she just didn't answer questions. I was very, very confused at first uh, for, a, for a long time um, until I switched um, after my first round of chemo and the whole first month that I was at um, one hospital after having Beckham, I switched to um, a blood um, cancer specialist and he was, he's amazing. He is, he's incredible. His office is incredible. His PA is like, they're like all like my friends and family, but I learned so much and they took such good care of me um, once I found the right doctor. But I do think it is very, very important for people that when you're diagnosed, you don't necessarily have to stay with whoever is there. You need to learn more about your cancer and find someone who specializes in it. Um, I think that's really, really important. So let me ask a final question of you both. And this is extremely unique to women um, that have children when dying with both of you did and I think Amanda, you mentioned before, like mommy's boo boo was your pick line. How do you talk to an, a, a young child, like under the age of six, five, four years old, 
about mommy's boo boo. And did you find books about this? Did you search Dr. Google for this? Did it come naturally to you? Because there's no blueprint for that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that was the hardest thing, like knowing that he wasn't going to be able to completely understand and also wanting him to protect him from it. Because I didn't want him to think, you know, mommy has something that, you know, kills so many people every year. Um, I probably should have looked for more books and I bet you there's probably not enough books out there. There should be more books, but I really just kind of equated it to, you know, you know, if this is mommy's boo-boo and I kind of prepare him, you know, I'm going to be sick for a week and, um, just kind of prepare him like that. And he got as sad as it is, he got used to it. Like he would just know, um, oh yeah, mommy's in bed or mommy, we can't wake mommy up right now kind of thing. And, um, I just remember the day I was so excited. It was, um, it was in the beginning of July and I knew I was done with my treatment. So I was able to get my pick line out after my very last treatment. I remember telling him, um, mommy's about to get her boo-boo all better and it's just going to be gone and we're not going to have to worry about it anymore. And, um, he was excited, not as excited as I wanted him to be, but he's a two-year-old. So, but he, he was excited. And then after the chemo was done and stuff and me being sick, then he got used to being, or got to get adjusted to having a brother too, but he's a great brother. So that's fine. But yeah, I think there should be more books out there and more resources because a lot of people that get diagnosed with cancer, like, as you said, you have children. Um, it's hard to, tell your children in an honest but like childlike level so I totally agree with that completely (laughs) um it it, you know I don't I don't know for you but for me you know it was kind of one of those things where when you know he was going to realize how sick I was, not just because of me being in the hospital but you know so many people relate cancer to being bald and not having any hair. Um, and so to do that whole thing, um, whenever I started to lose my hair, you know, we, we tried to explain to Brody that, you know, mommy's sick and she's in the hospital and things like that. Um, but we decided to, um, Clay wanted to shave his head first. And then he told Brody, Brody, I'm going to shave mommy's head. And Brody was there um, to watch it. So it wasn't like where he came into the hospital one day and all of a sudden mommy doesn't have any hair. Um, You know, that was fearful for me because I was just so scared. He was going to be like, mommy, you're ugly. Or, you know, um, those types of things are kind of hard to take, you know, when you're you're battling with something like that, I guess. But... um, but, you know, he would rub my head and he was like, I like your head. I like your I like your head the way it is. And it was just so sweet. But, you know, you they do notice stuff. They do notice when you're in bed um, all the time. And and still to this day, if I go, oh, I, mommy's got to go to the doc to the doctor. He's like, are you coming back? Because he knows that sometimes I don't get to come back. Sometimes I go to the doctor and they decide to keep me because I have an, an illness or I'm because I'm sick from something else, you know, uh, post-chemo and post-stem cell transplant. So, um, you know, it's really, really hard uh, to kind of 
put that on a level. You don't want to scare them and say, well, you know, I can die from this or anything like that. You know, you want to make sure that they feel, they know that mom, they kind of understand that mommy's pretty sick, but they um, know that you're still going to be there. And, um, and now that I'm able to be around um, and take care of the kids by myself, um, just recently, it's been really, really incredible just being at home and taking them out to do things and going to Barnes Noble and, you know, um, just having little dates with them. It's really fun. Well, these are two incredibly compelling stories. We're about out of time, but I was hoping each of you might take a moment to talk about your principal coping mechanism for all of this and what your message is to the next you that has to go through this, something that possibly could have made it suck a little less that you wish you had. So let's start with Amanda. Um, I would say, like, first of all, my foundation of everything was just my faith and um, trusting God and knowing that even though this happened, like, there was going to be a greater purpose for it, um, and there was going to be plans for it. And then I would say something that I would do, I think I did a pretty good job at taking help, but something I would even do even more is anyone going through it, like, accept the help that's there. Like, humble yourself. You know, you can pay it forward later on when you're better, but this is your time to just make sure that you get better. And if help comes your way, you know, accept it. So, yeah, I had to agree with Amanda there. I think, I think, you know, it's, I definitely think accepting help is probably one of the hardest things to do when you're in that situation or, or just as a part of your personality because you're like, no, no, we can handle it. But really, honestly, you can't. I mean, you need everybody's support in this. And, you know, um, I, so I think that is very, very important to remember. Have people, you know, set up um, a, a, ca- an, a calendar for you for food and things like that. And people bring you food and cook you food. But make sure they know what type of food they can bring you because you can't eat certain things if you're neutropenic and certain and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that that's very important. But I also think, you know, too, I think I, I wish I would have done this, but I wish I would have regularly talked to someone, um, a counselor or something, just going through the whole mental process of it all. Cause it's so taxing on you mentally and to watch your family members watch you go through something like this. You know, it's hard cause we're going through the physical aspects of it and the emotional, but having your family members see it and, you know, and it's still, it's still a struggle for me. I mean, I still feel bad, um, for my husband and stuff. I'm like, you do too much for me. It's it's just too much. I don't know how to repay you. I don't ever know how to pay you back for this. And, um, and so I, I think like talking to a counselor and, and, you know, or a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whoever you need to talk to or a friend, you know, have that extra outlet there because um, your emotions are going to bounce all over the place. One day you're going to be like, I'm going to kick this cancer's ass. And the next day you're going to be like, I'm over it. I'm done. Um, and, and that's okay. But you just have to pick yourself back up and you need someone there to balance out those emotions for you. So... Well, there you have it, two incredibly inspiring and regrettably not that unique because it happens too often, but very, very, very inspiring stories. Cassidy White, 
Amanda Albritton, both diagnosed with cancer while pregnant and already have a young child in existence in their family. Tr- truly strong stuff. I wish you guys the happiest and healthiest of holidays. Uh, peace be with you and uh, Godspeed. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. <laughs> powerful. Yeah. I think I said powerful too many times, but it, it, it's it's so interesting that they have such unique stories, but mirror each other in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and that they can relate despite the fact that they had just drastically different things happen. Well, I mean, it's also like how you make your own way with what you have. Yeah. And what they didn't have and they made their own way. And they're here today with that story. But that's why we ask, you know, how could it have sucked less? Yeah. And, uh, you know, isolation, fear, anxiety, you know, all these things you really need to know that you're just not told. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Season 19. Season 19. All right. And now it's time for our final closing sequence of 2016. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show, the 406th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Join our community on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out the awesome products in the Stupid Cancer store or learn how to host a meetup. Consider running for Team Stupid Cancer and, of course, subscribe to this podcast. All online at stupidcancer.org. I'd like to thank our guests for Season 19 finale, Amanda Albright and Cassidy White. As a reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of my team, we're at the Stupid Cancer Show. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right back here next season, season 20. Imagine having it in college with so much on your plate.